Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at Hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Shemini, which uh, covers Leviticus chapters 9 through 11. One of the things that we saw just as this passage was, was ending up here, it says, watch out for the things heaven says make one unfit to enter the kingdom of God. And also, we should look on top of that, at some of the things that are out of your control are living in a world that's under the curse of Eden. And some of these things are, as it talks about that, you know, if you have to deal with the carcass, you have to deal with the carcass. It's one of those things that uh, it says you are unclean until evening, but one of the things is is that you're not actually looking out to go be involved with them, but if it happens, it happens. But it, you just realize that it's something that is going to make you unfit to approach the presence. But also, focus on what's in your control. What is in your control? Are you looking to go for those things? And and as we, we go on through the book of Vaikra, we'll see that there are you know, some conditions that happen to men and women that make one also... Uh, clean and unclean, and some of those are just the bodily cycles and things that happen. And is that something that is in your control or out of your control? But one of the things that is teaching around all of this is is what is making one fit or unfit to approach the presence as you are. And that's the key point. And that's something we've seen throughout the book of Leviticus, Vaikra, as coming as you are. One of the things that we'll also see in this passage, and as we take a look at it, is that heaven is taking each one of us, and really all of humanity, on a journey to a new beginning, going from bondage, which we just celebrated the freedom from bondage there in Egypt with uh, Pesach, Passover, and moving on to rest, the land of rest. So, I guess it be kind of actually good to work with this in a little bit of reverse order here, starting with Leviticus 11, looking at uh, some of the words between what's commonly translated in English as clean and unclean. So, first, where we get clean from translated, especially in this passage, as tahor. And uh, we'll, we'll see that it's really referring to the things that make one fit. Uh, one of the things we'll be t- taking a look at, like a misunderstanding of how clean and unclean get used. But one way that some people have saying is a better way to put it is, it doesn't make you fit or unfit. So one of the things that we say is that Tahor does not make one holy. It just does not make one set apart for God, but it does keep one holy or keep one set apart. Because one of the things is, is that if you are set apart or the set apart people, but 
you uh, become, as we'll see in a moment, uh, tame or unclean, then it's like, okay, there is a a stop, something that is, is stopping you from just proceeding directly into the presence. And remember, the original context of this is a discourse to the priesthood. So this is something that is extrapolated out from the instruction to the priesthood to, you could say, the greater uh, priesthood, the greater people of Israel. But the immediate context is the fitness of the priests to approach or um, not approach in their current state. So continuing on, that uh, Tahor doesn't block entry to the presence. And with unclean, the it's translated from the Hebrew word uh, Talmei, and just as the counterpart to being uh, Tahor, being fit to approach the presence, Talmei might be considered to be unfit to approach the presence. And we see that it doesn't mean that you're sinful or wicked, because this is what we were mentioned earlier. We'll see as, as Fayekra rules along that there are just regular conditions that happen in the human body, whether the sickness or just the regular cycles of men and women, that will make one, uh, make one holy or uh, make one fit or unfit to approach, rather. But Tom A, being in a state of Tom A, is, does block you entrance to the presence. You know, however, one of the things that's being mentioned here is trying to enter God's presence while Tom A is wickedness, especially if you know that you are in a state of Tom A and you are marching in any way um, that is slightly, you could say, part of the theme of chapter 10, especially the, the key part of the beginning part of chapter 10 of Vaikra of what's going on there. But it is a general point that saying, okay, if you are in a state of Tom a and you just think I'm going to just march in anyway, um, that is as you are not, <laughs> not something that is making you fit to approach. You are unfit to approach, but do you go in anyway? One of the things that Yeshua illustrated this pervasive problem of uh, Tamei and presuming you can just go in to God while you are internally uh, Tamei is the parable of the wedding garment and also a discussion about paying taxes. And that's found in Matthew 22. And what are those two cases talking about is the parable of the wedding garment is like you uh, have to go in with the garments that you were given to go into the banquet, the banquet being synonymous with you know, entering the kingdom of heaven. And the one who gives you the invitation says, uh, you cannot wear those garments, get, wear the garments that I give you to wear. But what is, does the person in the parable do? They just decide to go in as they are. And they realize, oh, wow, <laughs> I can't just go in as I am with the clothes that I think I can just wear, I have to wear the clothes that are given to me. And, and one of the things you'll see garments as a symbol of in the prophets is talking about righteousness. And especially you'll see that the prophets, a discussion of um, 
a time where you know, it even uses the the name of the high priest at the time, and he's given new clothes to wear. Meaning, and when you look at the greater context of that, that's referring to the situation of the people, you know, their internal part, their righteousness was not great. But you see the great mercy of the Lord in saying, I see that that your clothing, your garments are not great. They're not fit to approach, but I'm going to give you new garments that are fit to approach. And that's a part of what you could say is the, the covering that is given to the priesthood. And another thing that you see mentioned throughout this uh, chapter 11 of Leviticus is uh, translated as abhorrent from shakets. And it's translated also as, as a detestable thing. But one of the things that you can kind of look as the punchline of all of Leviticus 11, and also you could say a lot of this entire passage here from 9 to 11 is um, found in the last part of what we read in Leviticus uh, chapter 11, verse 47, that phrase to make a distinction between the clean and the unclean. That is the point of this. So you're like, okay, make a distinction between the clean and the unclean. But one of the greater lessons you get out of this is to, you know, about discriminating, you know, between the things that block you access to God and those that help you with access to God. And that's really expounded upon throughout the prophets and also the apostles expound upon this. And Yeshua, as he was, was teaching, you know, what were all of his kingdom parables about? His kingdom parables were about the things that block you from access to the kingdom and the things that grant you access to the kingdom. So one of the lessons that we have on a, on a daily and sometimes many times a day basis is when we are confronted with the things we eat. So just a quick overview of characteristics of tahor food. Um, just it's a, this is a quick summary of uh, the things that we saw here in chapter 11. We're going to go into great detail of it because we're going to be looking at uh, some of the things that uh, the first part of this passage, chapter 9, and a little bit of chapter 10, really uh, latches onto. And it's also something that we covered in incredible depth. I went back and looked at this uh, Shemini presentation from, from uh, was it, it was actually in 2017. And my goodness, it was two and a half hours. So we're not going to be here for two and a half hours this time. So uh, we're going to be focusing on something a little bit different and drilling down into one aspect of where we went before, but it's a, a bit different. So just in summary, this past uh, chapter 11 talks about the, the land creatures. And again, as we'll go into Devarim or Deuteronomy, which is the the second telling or the telling to that generation that's getting ready to enter the land. So second generation post Exodus. So chapter 14 of Deuteronomy, you'll see a lot of this reiterated again. So thus a number of these instructions in chapter 11, you'll find them repeated again in chapter 14 of Deuteronomy. So we talked about land creatures. One of the big 
distinctions about cloven or divided hoof and chewing the cud. And examples are given of good stuff, the tahor, and stuff that is tame. So the good stuff and the bad stuff are are mentioned. And you might also hear the the term mentioned today is treif, and treif is a um, bit of a Yiddish term meaning torn. So that's <laughs> when when you see the. It, the instruction in the Torah about uh, things torn by animals, uh, that's kind of where that comes from in the term of treif. So we get some examples. And the interesting thing about seafood is, is basically it's a very simple explanation of fins and scales. And to the flying animals, that one is even <laughs> less specific because it's just examples of animals. And thus people have come up with various rubrics of what this is referring to is it uh referring to birds of prey and uh are they we call them avians then what do you do with the with the bat which is technically classic classified as we do these days as a mammal versus a bird but shares some of the similar characteristics of especially flight with the um with the other uh, avian but also, when you look back through time, um, there's there's real debate in the fossil record as to what those are. I mean, some of them, they've come up and found that, yeah, those are the same part of the same kind that the other kinds that the we call the birds today or the avians uh, come from. And then some of those uh, could be reptilian so just like the bat is a mammal that flies uh, looks like in times past there you know the right around the time of creation there were there were um call them today reptiles that fly and indications in the bible that yeah that's the case when they talk about the the seraphim or the the fiery serpent sometimes uh, just depicted as winged serpents so perhaps in times past uh more of those were around than in times now. And uh, generally, uh, there's the bucket of the insects. And yeah, we it's kind of a, here in the, in the Western world, we kind of balk at the idea of, of insects, but you know, you'll, You'll see that even in uh, surrounding countries, uh, some of the insects are a delicacy. And uh, even today, you have some of the globalist uh, organizations that are trying to eat a, have us eat more insects So uh, over ideas of better use of the world's resources by eating insects versus um, cattle and other uh, livestock like that. But... Anyway, this is just the basic overview of what these characteristics are of Tahor food. So, again, the point of all this, as mentioned at the end of chapter 11, is to make a distinction between what is Tahor, what is Tameh, what is fit, unfit, clean, unclean. So, as we go on, we'll see what this, this indeed, kind of like the, the pattern for the tabernacle itself, is a pattern of something else, something that we've seen is a depiction between the world of uh, the kingdom of God and the world not not out or not in the kingdom of God, that which approaches, that which doesn't approach. So, 
One of the things that we'll be looking at, and it's kind of a key thing that is where this passage is named, is Shemini. So that is the, the title of it. It comes from the first verse of this parasha, as most of the parasha are, parashot are named after uh, a key word in the first verse or so of them. And this one, it comes from the consecration of the priesthood on the first uh, on the eighth day, uh, listed there in Leviticus nine one. So a little bit on the word that's translated as eight in Hebrew. It's uh, shemone, and the shemone is the eight and eighth, which is what it's described here as shemini, and uh, so. Yom Shemini is the eighth day. And when you look at the lexicons, they talk about it could be related to the or derived from the verb as Hebrew tends to be derived from verbs, derived from the verb shaman, which means uh, fat or plenty. So one of the things that's helpful when you're going through lexicons and looking at the quote nouns versus the verbs, the, the action words, the quote adjectives and adverbs uh, who function a bit differently in Hebrew than they do in English. But one of the things to often look at is what is the, the, the thought that is encapsulating the verb that it starts from and the nouns that they end up in? What is the overriding thought? And if it indeed is derived from the verb shaman, which means uh, to be fat, to be plenty. So thus you get this picture of um, shamone, shamini, eight, eighth is communicating that something has reached its fullness, its capacity, and then is flowing over. So thus, as we go on, we'll see that it is a, a picture that you see often in the word of reaching something that has gone to its limit and then going beyond it. So shamone, eight, shamani, eighth, can be seen to be pointing to things that are new beginnings. Here's some just a, some examples of some events in the, in the Torah so far up to this point and uh, looking at where they're going from there. So we go back to the flood, Genesis chapter 7, 8, enter and exit the ark during the flood. And thus we see that what kind of new beginning was that? It was a rebuilding of mankind spiritually, because that was the one that uh, Noah and his family trusted what the Lord said. They built the ark, and then they went in the ark, and they physically were protected. So it's a it's a physical renewal and a spiritual renewal of mankind. Because the physical part of that is a genetic bottleneck. Something we've talked about as we went through in times past is that the one of the things that's been quite interesting for um, talking about the origins of things is the you could say the the source code. Like in software, like the software we're using here today, it's all based on software that, and it's written by programmers. And the the 
applications like this particular one we're using here works on a operating system software and then that interacts with the whatever computer or, or device that you're using to reach it here but all of that is very similar to and frankly as you hear geneticists talk about it, a crude form of what actually is happening in all of our bodies all the time. I mean, just as we're sitting here seemingly doing nothing, our cells are replicating all the time. And as a part of that process of how they operate and how they replicate and and advance, they are um, changing they're basically exchanging software with each other and each version of a cell has the software that came before it. And the software also it gives the instructions on how to build the cells and such. I mean, we're now coming on this format because of the, uh, this new coronavirus and the SARS, um, Cove night or Cove two is what they call it. Uh, is the form of a of a coronavirus viruses are not alive they do not have the reproductive things themselves and they kind of fall into general buckets of dna and rna this particular one of the coronaviruses is an rna one so it's a different part of code from the dna but also a section of code and it replicates itself by uh basically taking over a cell and getting the cell to make more copies of itself. And then um, in the end, having the cell release copies of itself, lots and lots and lots of copies. This particular one, one of the reasons why uh, for good or ill um, governments are getting excited about this particular one is, is that it makes lots and lots and lots of copies of itself of a bit more than some, even the, the first iteration, which we call SARS, but it was SARS part one. This is SARS part two, uh, the sequel, um, far worse than the original. But as we look at this, the meaning of it is, uh, going back to the flood that humankind reached a genetic bottleneck and is now moving on beyond that. So humanity reached a new beginning spiritually, reached a new beginning physically. And that's something if um, that we can easily point skeptics in the Bible back to. It's like, follow the genetics backward, and you will see that not only does it not go back a long time, it only goes back um, about a couple hundred generations at max genetically, but it also goes back to very, very small groups of people. And in fact, with the Y chromosome, one person. Uh, and uh, with the mitochondrial DNA, and perhaps two to three people. So you're looking, hmm, it seems to reflect uh, what's represented in the word. Now, the another event that we see the eighth show up on is the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision on the eighth day found over there in Genesis chapter 17 and also reiterated again in Genesis 21. And one of the things that we see with this sign of circumcision is that it is a legacy of the people who trust. And because one of the things that's mentioned as in Genesis 15, 6 is that, you know, Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed what? 
he believed that the legacy would actually come down through him. And a part of that is a sign for all all the males that are a part of this as to where they come from. It starts out as a baby and continues down through life. So it's one of those things today, there's a lot of people that are pushing back on this practice as barbaric, but you look also at the at the Passover and a part of the Passover is the telling of the story. Why are we doing this? That's part of what the, the children are supposed to be asking. Why are we doing this? And then relating the legacy of what the legacy of Pesach is all about. So for you know, we men, the legacy that we should be thinking about is that we do we um get angry at our forefathers for what they've done or or not done? Or is it something that um is a looking back on the legacy that we do have and saying, well, what is this legacy that I have? And am I actually pursuing it? Our parents may not have thought anything of it when they were doing it. It might've been what everyone did at the time. Others may have been more thoughtful in what they were doing. Another event is we see uh, kind of leading up to what we're looking at here today is that the offerings of the the offerings of the Lord and the priesthood were going to transition to the, t- the to the tabernacle on the eighth day? And it's recorded first time we saw it with uh, the construction and the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle back in Exodus 22. We see it reiterated in uh, the ending part of Leviticus chapter eight, kind of leading up to where we are here today. And one of the lessons about this new beginning is like, okay, um, the old ways of doing things, the, the old ways of just offering a, an offering up anywhere was now going to be transitioning to a specific place. We've seen that throughout the, the Torah going up to this part is that um, we were talking about the flood earlier, uh, Noah offered, he built an altar and, and offered something. It wasn't any place of a tabernacle. Now this is a transition uh, from anywhere to somewhere. And it's also pointing us to that pattern that was shown Moshe up on the mountain, that the anywhere was going to become specifically somewhere. And that is a, a lesson of what the really the tabernacle is all about. It's like, well, is this just to create a a shrine or is this to say hey this is a progression to a new beginning for reality that the the kingdom of of heaven is actually not going to just be everywhere but it's going to be somewhere so continuing on with this and looking at some of the pilgrimage appointments and how they reflect to this. Um, Leviticus 23 is where you can see where the, the timing interval of these are, but they're mentioned a number of times throughout the rest of the Torah as uh, grouped together as being three times a year that um, the sons of Israel, the men at least, are to present themselves. So kind of looking at a, f- a few of them just specifically, like Pesach and 
and matzot, Passover, unleavened bread we just went through. That's described there as being the from the 14th day of the first month. So it's right near the end of the 14th day, almost the 15th day. And that goes through then the seven days of unleavened bread from the 15th to the 21st days of the first month, uh, the month of Aviv there. And together that equals eight days. Well, what is the meaning of that? As we've seen in going through the Passover Seder and the remembrance of that, it's remembering the protection from the wrath of God, then deliverance from the house of bondage. So thus we say that the original Pesach and the Pesach that we remember that Yeshua celebrated are teaching, you know, we're talking about the initial starting of it and then the great Passover, and we, we looked forward to an even greater Passover in the kingdom of God. But all of it is protection about the wrath of God originally, wrath of God being the destroyer going through through the place. And then with the Mashiach uh, teaching us about, ah, the wrath of God being blocked and then delivered so that pattern, the original pattern of Egypt of being the original protection there and that Passover night, and then the journey afterward. Similarly, each one of us has the protection, that blocking of the wrath of God, then the deliverance, which we see with the next one, which is what we're kind of leading up to in the midst of with Shavuot or Pentecost. And as that's described there, it's uh, seven sevens of days, the seven Shavuot or seven sevens of days, plus the one day on the end of that. And together that equals 50 days. But, you know, when you see seven sevens plus one, you got another eight grouping of that. And the eight grouping, one of the things that we see as we're, uh, we saw during the time of the Exodus and even up into uh, where we are in Vayikra, we see that this is not only just protection uh, from the wrath of God that we saw during Pesach and Matzo and deliverance, but now this is protection during this deliverance from bondage. Because you know, after the crossing of the Red Sea, one of the things we celebrate at the at the um, the last day of unleavened bread. After that. You know, as you go back in Exodus, you see in, in chapter 16 and 17 about the the trials that are faced, the hunger and thirst and attacking armies and the various uh, challenges and um, rebellions that they go through. But through this, this is, again, the question that keeps coming up again and again and again. Is the Lord with us or not? And one of these things that's good to remember is, yes, you know, the Lord is with us, which is very, very kind of interesting that you see a parallel to that uh, with the, you know, after the resurrection and said that, that uh, the Mashiach then began, uh, was appearing to people for over a space of 40 days. And so it's again, encouragement again and again through that time period that, yes, you know, the Mashiach hasn't abandoned them, but said at the, finally at the point, it's like, okay, I am going to go, but 
get prepared because that's uh, back in you know, John, as we read uh, during the, the last Shabbat, we read John chapter 14 through 16, and we saw there where it's talking about the comforter who was going to come. I have to go, and the comforter it has to come. And then we see that when finally, after the 40 days, then he said, wait, there is something coming. And that came, the spirit coming with power there in Shavuot recorded in Acts chapter two. So continuing on with um, this illustration of Sukkot or tabernacles and Shemini Yetzirah or the convocation of the eighth day. And that's recorded there as the 15th day to the 21st days of the seventh month. So that's Sukkot itself, plus the 22nd day of the seventh month. So altogether, that's eight days. And what is, what is this? Um, we, what does this mean and what is it pointing toward? Something that we talk in varying degrees about every, every year when we, when we celebrate Sukkot and Shemini Yetzirah is about how the Lord was dwelling with Israel between the deliverance from the house of bondage and all the way up to the rest in the land. And really the land there being uh, akin to eternal rest. And we just recently went through there looking at uh, Hebrews uh, verses uh, chapters three and four, where it really talks about that. And it quotes chapter three quotes a lot from Psalm 95 in that regard. So, one of the things we see through this is just like there is a picture of new beginnings. There's something new that's beginning here as we're looking at in chapter nine of Vayikra, this new beginning of transition to the tabernacle, transition to the priesthood, the, the sons of Aharon. So into Leviticus nine itself. It's really the, the Kohanims or the, the priesthood's first day on the job. And the context of this is chapters one through eight. And we've seen in that, that process, the process that God had required for the priesthood to approach toward the Lord's presence. And we saw, we looked at those, the five types of the korbanot, the, the offerings, the things that approach. So, those various classes of the of the things that approach indicate, hey, there is a system. And we just saw more of the need to be careful with that system in chapter 10 of Vaikra. We'll be getting to that. But this, the lead up to that is there is a process that's required for the priesthood to approach the Lord's presence. And as we see from the first five chapters, that this word korban or offering, it's translated to go near and from the root verb of where these things stem from, uh, to go near. So korban means the thing that takes one near. Something we talked about at the beginning part of Leviticus, that this is the important lesson of the tabernacle is going toward the presence of God. So the korbanat allow the priests and the others of Israel to approach to varying degrees toward the Lord's presence in the tabernacle. I say to, to varying degrees because um, not every priest was able to go this, the same distance. And the high priest was 
only allowed to go all the way. And something that is discussed more in chapter <laughs> chapter 10 and also as we get to it in chapter 16. But um, going back to what we see in chapter um, 7 of Mark, Yeshua talks about the Korban and in a very interesting context of Korban in a passage that also talks about clean and unclean, which is something that we see here in Leviticus chapter 11. Now, this is something that we've, we went through in our last marathon session, which we're not going to do again, but um, it, you'll see that at hello.info slash Shemini dash 2017. So uh, it, is an extensive dive into Mark chapter seven, Acts chapter 10, Romans chapter 14, which is where the sections where they talk about clean and unclean foods. And do, do they rewrite Leviticus chapter 11? Do they um, cast it into the bin of a historical curiosity? Do they abrogate or meaning to, um, set aside Leviticus chapter 11 and the instructions there. So the punchline of Mark chapter seven is in verses 15 and also 20 through 23. So first off Mark chapter seven, verse 15, there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. And then in verses 22 and 23, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within and defile the man. What we're going to do is um, take a look at the, at the preceding verses to this with that context of the instructions for clean being a lesson about internal purity. We're going to look at Mark 7, 1 through 13. And then after we read this passage and I get, get your thoughts on where we've come so far and then explore a little bit further about what Yeshua is teaching here in Mark chapter 7 and how that relates back to what we see in uh, Vayikra chapter 9. So Leviticus chapter 9 and also in chapter 10. So Mark chapter 7 verses 1 through 13. The Pharisees said, uh, the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him. And when they had come from Yerushalayim and had seen that some of his students were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, rightly did Yeshiahu prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
but in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moshe said, honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have uh, that would help you is korban, that is to say, given to God, you are no longer to permit him anything for his father and mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many such things as that. Okay, so, so at this point, I'd like to get your thoughts as to, um, we've talked about Mark chapter 7 in times past, uh, what you see as the key tie-in between clean and unclean, washing hands, and what we've seen so far. What are the lessons that you've gleaned from this? Larry. I'd say that it's a little difficult to follow it all and without giving, since he didn't give us um, explicit instructions about how to handle the differences, um, it gets confusing and it's very hard to relate to other people. Explicit instructions on, on how to make differences? What, what do you mean? And, and how to know whether something is clean or unclean. Mm. I mean, some of it he does, but most of the time he doesn't. Like the insects, for instance, I'm always stuck with the fact that what we call insects don't ever have four legs. They always have six legs. And um, I, I guess he's talking about the, the jumpers, the two legs in the front of a, of a, of a uh, locust or a grasshopper are what they use to, I think, is what they use to, to jump so high. But at any rate, uh, it's, it just gets kind of difficult to follow all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's my comment Especially when you're when you're down uh, going for the roasted this or roasted that of the of the bugs. Uh, th- thankfully, the yeah, well, they haven't uh, graced us with that yet. It's funny the crickets are in, are are included in that. Like it would be good to get. Sometimes you want to get a cricket out of the house. You might well eat it, but grasshoppers too. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But I, I've never had <clears throat> crickets make make that infernal noise all, all night long. Yes. <laughs> quite, quite an amazing thing of how much noise can be made just from uh, rubbing their, their legs across those, those tines kind of like uh, a tiny guy. Yeah. Chinese, uh, that's luck. To, good luck to have it in your house. That's why. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it does yeah. set us apart. And I think that in my mind, that's a big part of the whole thing. And it makes us sometimes have to witness when we wouldn't otherwise not. Someone wants to feed us some good solid ham or something. And we have to say, no, I'm sorry. I don't eat that. Then we have to tell them why. Yeah. And that is uh, what, what have you um, conveyed as to the why of that? Pardon? What have you conveyed as far as when they ask why? 
and mostly because God said so. I mean, people say, well, they have these diseases that they can pass on mm-hmm. to humans. But right. We can get that from many different sources. So, oh, yes. God told us to do it, so we do it because we trust him, and he doesn't have to tell us why. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... It's even yeah. simpler than that. What would Jesus do? Did Jesus eat that? No. <laughs> no, why do yeah. I? I don't know. And one of, one of the lessons of this is um, really how easily the things around us can um, slip in if we're not paying attention. You know, even for those who are fastidiously paying attention, the things will slip in. So that's one of the, the spiritual lessons of it is because in this, you see that this is a spiritual lesson. You know, the the lessons of uh, the clean and the unclean foods are there for the purpose of the pattern. And the purpose of the pattern is to connect us with with God and to reconnect us from God. Something that we'll be getting to a little bit more as we get on into chapter nine of Aikra. But this is important waypoint that we're reaching here because this particular passage here in Mark chapter seven is uh, often brought up as for why uh, those instructions before are now being jettisoned. But one of the key things we're looking to get here today is what was the purpose of those lessons? One of the the things that we, we, we touched on in a, in a previous encounter was the idea, well, this was just to say that you're, you're not supposed to, um, you're supposed to have a distinction between you and the nations. And well, that was all done away with. And, and, uh, with the, with the, the new covenant did away with all this and the coming of Mashiach and going out to the nations did away with all that. But as we talked about in a previous occasion, the lesson of, of Acts chapter 10 and this here, Mark chapter 7, are quite similar in that regard. They're quite similar in that they are teaching that this is a still a distinction of what is fit and what is unfit. And as we saw from the quote punchline passages of Mark chapter 7, that the unfit part is something that starts from the inside out. So, not just about what, as it's talked about here with impure hands, impure food that's going in, into your mouth. All right. Well, no other thoughts. We'll continue on with this. So, as we get back to the question here, Yeshua is talking about with Korban. One of the things that we see in Mark seven eleven is that Yeshua is citing an example of the tradition of uh, overruling of the example of tradition when it overrules the Torah. Before he continues on with this analysis that he's giving of the tradition of the nidalat yadayim or the cleansing of the hands that was being used as the mark of purity. We saw that at the beginning part of Mark chapter seven. So, Kind of just re- refreshing our minds again with this, the last uh, few verses of this passage. For Moshe said, and talking about your experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moshe said, honor your father and your mother. It comes from the 
the Big Ten, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. And he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. Okay, saw that in the next chapter after the Big Ten, Exodus 21 and Leviticus chapter 20, we'll be getting to soon. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever I have would, uh, that would help you is korban, that is to say, given to God, you will no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. So, is this really a um, an adequate or even justified uh, critique? One of the things that we'll be looking at here is this example of the Korban. One of the things that is, uh, we mentioned at the outset, is the Korban is intended to bring the person, to bring the heart of the person, to bring the what's inside a person closer to heaven, closer to the presence of God. And the pattern of that closeness is what's presented with the tabernacle or the temple. So thus, in Yeshua's example here, this vow keeper you know, should realize that his compassion or his faith in action, his faith, trust in what uh, the Lord had said about honor your father and your mother, putting that into action, what does that honor look like? Well, taking care of your parents and what their needs are. That that real compassion for his parents was a part of his devotion or his faith in action to God. That is expressed with the vow or the oath. Because what is the vow or the oath? The vow or the oath is not something that you had to do. It is something you voluntarily did. And it was what? It was supposed to be an expression of your devotion. It's uh, your expression of you are going to take your trust in God and put it forward to actually accomplish something. And a part of that was going to be either uh, the what it you had included for your vow or if there was an oath and it was um, sealed with something. Yes. Deborah. Rose is going to do it. Rose. Yes. Rose. Well, I just, uh, I almost lost my train of thought because you went on for so long, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, (laughs) I want to go back to the, uh, I'm just being honest. I, I yes, please. Too many words went by. Too many words. <laughs> uh, I just want to go back to the two sons and the and the native and bayou and the you know uh, lighting up those uh, not the candlesticks but the other things. The sensor. The sensor. Are strange fire. Oh yes. Yeah. And Nadab and Abihu. Yeah. Yes. You no. Know, uh, everything that we do and say should be to the glory of God. And that, that includes what your comments over here in Mark, you know, uh, where Christ said, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of his mouth. Well, you know what? Uh, we should take, we should only want to take in what God has provided for us, but there are occasions like if we eat out, and uh, we don't know that something is in the food and we eat it. Uh, that's not a sin to God. We ate it unbeknownst. But if we if we do something on purpose uh, against God, what he has asked us to do, then that is that's considered unclean and, and, and sinful. 
Yeah, you should but always be beyond the. If we do something that we don't know that we did, you know, uh, that's just missing the mark. That's not. Uh, that's not the sins that we've learned about in the past. You know, the the three different types of sin. Yeah, because when you when you see these clean and the unclean, you know, what is the the common thing when it says about if you are, um, you know, Tame, you're Tame until when? You die? You're un- no, you're unclean until evening. Yes. Uh, and then also the the washing washing of your clothes. So between those those two things, between the watching out for the things you eat and then also the washing of your clothes, especially if you're around a, a carcass of one of these things that's on the uh on the tame list, then those things are you could say good lessons about wow, uh something has has clung to me. I have come into the midst of uh something that is um dirty but again as we talked about with this just looking at the list it is fairly arbitrary there are some people who have tried to make some distinctions and so you might can make distinctions between the the cattle and the livestock and certain things but frankly a lot of it is arbitrary and that is actually a good interesting lesson is that to if something is mentioned as a this is for you, this is not for you, a part of this clean and unclean is to actually consider, well, maybe I should just go along with it because it is said that I should not go that way and not always second guess everything and say, well, this, maybe that, maybe this, maybe that. So that's one of the interesting lessons, but you also notice that uh, for the, as you mentioned, the innocent mistake on it, you're what? You're, you're Tame until evening, and if it's a corpse or a carcass, that is, then you uh, have to wash your clothes. It's by accident at a seafood place, right? I think everything we do, though, is, is uh, it has to deal with the heart. And that's what God is after. He's after your heart. And if we're going to do something out of pure rebellion because it's something we want to do, mm-hmm. and then we think we can go into the throne of God and have a conversation with him, I think we're sadly mistaken. And uh and he, he doesn't want he doesn't want you to come near him uh when you've when you have rebelled to the point where you're gonna do it anyway. Don't don't bother coming to me in prayer. I don't want, I'm not going to, I'm not hearing it. I'm not going to be there. The door's closed. Hello. So, uh, I think we, I think we need to pay attention to what God says that we ought to be doing Mm. and don't expect an answer from him when you're, when you are, uh, out and out doing what you want to do and don't expect a covering or a blessing. So, I mean, you can manipulate the scriptures to, to however you think you want to do it. But in the end, God's in control and he's going to have his way with you. Mm. You are not going to have your way with him. <laughs> it just don't work like that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's my opinion and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, thank you. Yeah. My rose. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe that should become my, uh, my nickname. Jeff, too many words. Yes, there we go. <laughs> Or just shorten it to blah, blah, blah. 
I know. But what I'm saying is, if you lost in the I'm listening to your words and I'm taking it all in. But if I too many go by, I can't remember what it was. I was <laughs> take notes. Yeah. yeah. Take notes. Take yeah. Remind yourself of the question. Oh yeah, I have a question about X Y Z, and then then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you can't be expected yeah. to remember a thought that popped into your head an hour and a half ago. Yeah, exactly. With that. Yeah, and what happened for me? Oh, well, you know, maybe uh, Tammy should take her uh, co-host uh, prerogative and just hit me with the mute button every so often. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, you our- ideas. Yeah, we, we know you're trying to save our soul, Jeff. Oh, <laughs> we know that you are telling us something and hopes that it will uh, stick in there, and it does. It comes in the night hours when you lay in your bed suffering and crying. God was wrong. You know? Oh my! And then those words come back, flowing into our minds and our hearts. So you're doing good. Well, praise God. Yeah, yeah. We're all trying, aren't we? That's right. He's having that baby, isn't he? I, I didn't mean to offend you. If I did, please. Oh no, no, not at all. <laughs> I'm just, I, I gotta give Jeff a hard time. <laughs> That's right. I. You have to. You have to remember that I am my father's son. So I, I've got a, a whole lot of catching up to do as far as the uh, lucubrious yeah. side. So one of the things that we see in, in Mark chapter 7 is when Yeshua is talking about uh, Korban is that you know, tr- tradition seems to later have sided with Yeshua when the Mishnah was codified, which is a few hundred years later. You know, uh, some, of, some of the aspects of the Mishnah go back um, you know, into the first century, perhaps the second century BC, but most of them are um, – stuff that you can tell because of the context goes on uh, into the, the at least couple hundred years uh, AD. So in particular, there's a comment here. Uh, this is from the, the Jewish annotated New Testament, which if you get a chance to get this, this is a fantastic thing. A lot of you probably already have the uh, Jewish New Testament commentary, which is, which is good. This, this one also uh, takes that a step further in exploring uh, what uh, some of the, you know, the under the hood discussions are between Yeshua and the Pedershim and the Pharisees and Yeshua and the Tzedakim or the, or the Sadducees. And this particular one, um, riffing on, on Mark chapter 7 verse 11, uh, the Mishnah in uh, Mishnah Tractate uh, Nadarim discusses Opening the way to repentance, in other words, allowing a vow to be released if it leads to a conflict with some something more important. Korban, or Hebrew for korban, is a sacrifice or gift to God. When something had been declared devoted to God, it was generally not permitted for the giver to retract the gift. And we'll be getting to that as, as Vayikra rules along. Continuing on with the quote here. Rabbinic tradition also allowed release from Korban when it deprived parents of their due. And so, this is actually what this is referencing here from the tractate uh, Nedarim. Uh, Rabbi Eliezer says, They unloose a vow for a person by reference to the honor of his father and mother, and sages prohibit, and 
you'll you'll often see that in there, and that basically means they declare that it's still binding. So you see in the Gospels where it talks about binding or loosening. This is the 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 prohibit or permit or allow. So said uh, Rabbi Sardok uh, Sadok before. They unloose a vow for him by reference to the honor of his father or mother. Let him unloose his vow by reference to the honor of the omnipresent. So, we're referring to, uh, to heaven. So, a vow to heaven. If so, there will be no vows. And uh, you might see a comparer to uh, a phrase that Yeshua uh, mentioned there in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 through 36. Um, about... Uh, if if that is the case, or I say, uh, make no oath at all, and that's a separate discussion. But sages can see to Rabbi Eliezer that in the matter which is between him and his mother and father, they unloose his vow by reference to the honor of his father or mother. So, thus, in this comment, we see here that um, in this case, they're like, okay, well, if you have a vow that was given it says the honor to the omnipresent, so that's a circumlocution for uh, the the name of God. But you have a vow for your to honor your father and your mother. Uh, which one do you actually unloose? So it says before they unloose a vow for him, before they unloose it or say that he doesn't have to honor his vow to his father and mother, they first allow him to get out of the vow to the, to the Lord. And that comment about that's basically the response to this. If so, there will be no vows. If you continue on reading here in the tractate, uh, Nedarim in this section divided uh, nine by kind of modern standards, You'll see that this discussion of there will be no more vows. You'll see the what you see the conditional. Um, if he gets into a jam with this, if he gets into a jam with that, do they let him out? And uh, that's where the the comment comes. Uh, there will be no more vows if you let people just get out of their vows, or if you make them uh, more strict. So, one of the things in going back to this passage of um, of Mark chapter 7, one of the things that we see with Korban is that it is, again, at the heart of it, it is a heart issue. So, the thing that a person is bringing to the Lord is to really bring in their self to the Lord. So, in this case, do you get out of your obligations to your parents, the obligations to other people, because you say that you are presenting something to the Lord? Well, the purpose of presenting and uh, going through with your vows and your oaths to the Lord is supposed to be that you're supposed to be getting closer to the Lord. So, that kind of an undergirding for where we go on with this conversation in Leviticus chapter 10. And Leviticus chapter 10 is talking about Nadab and Abihu, uh, the sons of Aharon that went up in the conflagration. Now, one of the things that you see is that this incident is 
behind the instructions that you see later on in Leviticus chapter 16 about that special day when the high priest goes directly into the presence of God, what we call the Day of Atonement. So, we see that in Leviticus 16, verses 1 and 2. Now, the Lord spoke to Moshe after the death of the two sons of Aharon, when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. The Lord said to Moshe, Tell your brother Aharon that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, or he will die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So, it's that being a little bit of the backdrop that we see here recorded in Leviticus chapter 10. So, some of the things that are derived from these instructions that you see in Leviticus chapter 10 for the sons of Aharon after this incident is, you know, number one, uh, verse six, it says priests can't enter the tabernacle with unkempt hair. The priest can't enter the tabernacle with ripped clothing. The priest can't leave the tabernacle while serving. And the priest can't enter the tabernacle or serve while they're intoxicated. So between all of these, you'll start to see that that the priests have to be really cognizant of where they're going. They can't just show up and wearing whatever. We see later on in the prophets that that became an issue with people just showing up, not really caring about what they were offering and how they were offering it. And be a lesson for us today is how is it that we approach and how is it that we approach in prayer? You know, the, the idea of approaching the throne of the Lord, do we approach it with the, the awe and respect of where it is we're going or do we treat it glibly? Now, one of the things that we, we see is that, um, and recorded there in, in Hebrews where it talks about that we go toward the throne with confidence because of the way opened by Yeshua, but confidence meaning that we actually have permission to go in by the work of the Mashiach, but not just because of, of who we are by ourselves. And we should be cognizant of how it is that we are approaching this really great honor that we are able to address the address the creator of heaven and earth. So some have uh, speculated that these warnings about the priestly demeanor that we see here in these verses uh, about entering at any time inside the holy place, inside the veil were the source of this strange or as it is in Hebrew, the foreign fire that Nadab and Abihu presented before the Lord bringing judgment upon them. But one of the interesting things also some have observed are some parallels between uh, this particular passage here and um, the Leviticus chapter 9 with the uh, the seven days of the, the vigil of the preparing 
the priesthood and really the tabernacle for things to get going. And then on the eighth day, actually kicking it off as perhaps maybe slightly analogous to the situation with the, the garden, the garden of Eden where you have the the days of creation, the six days, man's created on the sixth day. And then, of course, the seventh day, as it mentions there at the beginning of chapter two, that that was set aside as a memorial of creation because the Lord Shabbated, he stopped, he ceased his creation on that particular day. And then you have the great, um, you know, the extension beyond that where, at some point after that time is where you have what's described in later the chapter two and chapter three of Genesis, where you have the encounter with the, the tree, the one place that they were not supposed to go through out the garden. So you got two trees, the, the tree uh, I'm I'm sorry, <laughs> getting, getting ahead of myself in that one. In this case, there's the, the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in Eden, you have the place where you are not supposed to go for knowledge of good and evil. But as we've talked about in the case of that one, it is a lesson also in the place where you are supposed to go for knowledge of good and evil. And that one is the, the lesson there is, where do we go? We go to, we go to the Lord, who says distinguishes between good and evil. And interestingly enough, that distinction of good and evil is brought out by the lesson of the tree itself. So the tree itself is a part of the lesson of what is good and bad, because going to that tree is a part of the tr- of the path toward the bad, the part that is apart from the Lord, where you start separating yourself from the Lord. And you see that described in chapter three of Genesis, where you start, uh, they were, they were uh, unclothed. There was nothing that was between them and God and they were not ashamed. But then when they started to move toward the tree and away from God, they started to feel shame and they realized that they were naked. So they realized before being you know completely visible to the lord was not a big problem after when there is some division between you then suddenly it becomes a problem that the lord can see everything so it is an interesting picture that we have here uh, going back to this incident with nadab and abihu a lesson of the distinction between the good and bad between the clean that which is fit to approach and that which is unfit to approach and through all these lessons we see that this is something that starts with inside of us and whether you're talking about yeshua's lesson there about korban and riffing off that very interesting lesson is that the whole point of korban is to um emphasize and to teach about how you are to bring yourself toward the presence of God. And in the very part of supposedly fulfilling that you're now 
uh, creating a division or a wedge between those that the Lord says are worthy of honor and those are your father and your mother. So, and we've, we've, we've talked about it when we went through the Ten Commandments that not all of us had people who you would consider to be great fathers and mothers. But the principle of the father and the mother are there, that we started from somewhere. And that starting from somewhere, the ones that took us, that, that brought life to us, those are the ones who deserve honor. So taking that and to the greater extension, the one who gives us life, does the one who deserves honor in the Lord. So Larry, you have your hand up. Well, I was wondering, actually wondering two things about what you're talking about. I, I remember once before, I think it maybe was Daniel who said that when they're talking about honor your mother, your father and your mother, actually he's talking about are the patriarchs that came before us and not necessarily just our, just our um, physical parents. Yeah, it's a, it's it's entire it's entirely true. But um, the aspect of that is is that it takes it to the abstraction because the rest of everything is also about um, your the people around you. So true to the legacy you come from, but also true that it is about the people around you. Again, you know we are supposed to obey the high priest, but what if the high priest is a so and so? So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, real life does create the the curveball, but the principle in that is it's it's kind of like where you see in some cultures that still contain high levels of honor that they will show honor even to those people who are not you could say deserving of honor. You know, thus the the bowing to a reprehensible king. Wasn't that one of the great teachings of David that? With Saul, that he, although Saul was... He was not deserving of honor, no. Yeah. But David, because he was God's anointed, he was, David was going to honor him. Yes. Or at least not kill him. Yeah. And that, and that is one of those uh, things you even see with like the Apostle Paul, you know, the people who were put him on trial. Yeah. He was telling them off and they needed to be told off, but he said, oh, you are the high priest. So thus I was wrong, even though what the high priest was doing was wrong. Uh-huh. I was wondering when we talk about this too, in approaching the Lord, is this, we're talking about doing it in the tabernacle. Does it also go to our own personal life? Like, should we be paying attention to how we're, how we're clothed and how we're, uh, our demeanor when we're praying? for, you know, before, whenever we pray. Well, one of the things that you've seen is the the spiritual discipline of doing that, of, uh, you know, preparing yourself to pray and the various, whether you're talking about uh, Jewish tradition or early uh, Christian tradition, you did have that kind of, you could say, the, the statute uh, or the, the demeanor or the character of prayer. But then again, you know, you also see throughout, like, especially the Psalms and such of just the, the heart cry out at any particular time, the heart cry of what is really upon you. But 
in all of that, even in the Psalms, even when there's a heart cry out, you see the utmost sign of respect of who is being addressed at all times. And that's just being cognizant of it. I mean, we're, we're talking about we're now in this whole uh, video conference world at the moment. But uh, one of the things that a lot of people are having to uh, learn is that just because you are uh, not face-to-face with people does not mean that you can just let down and, you know, just show up and whatever, you know. So people showing up in a, at supposedly a business meeting, you know, wearing, you know, <laughs> the bathrobe and stuff like that. It's like, you know, go, go to the occasion as if you're approaching this seriously. So that with us uh, approaching our time with the Lord seriously. And in various traditions, you have the, the statue, uh, the uh, statures of prayer, whether you're standing or such, it's standing at certain times. Um, it's with the, the traditions of, you know, the tefillin is about the, the, the traditions of what times you do these various things with your, with your talit and your tzitzit. It's all a part uh, that's been um, a part of the institution, you could say, of approaching your interactions with the Lord seriously. But there's times throughout the day where you just offer up that, you know, help. Help. I need help. Larry's got a question. Yes, Larry. Oh, no, you said, I just got a thing that said, please unmute. So I did. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because you had your hand up. So Uh, I unmuted you. Oh, Larry's being polite. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I'm following the statute. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there we go. Most of the time. So I have to admit. All right. Well, that uh, concludes things here today. Uh, any last thoughts or comments or questions before we round things out? Okay. Well, I hope in in all of this, as we continue to go through uh, the book of Vayikra, you'll be you'll be seeing that one of these lessons, you know, not just for the priesthood, but we, as we take this out into the world around us, how. Do we approach other people? How do we approach the Lord? And are we approaching other people and approaching the Lord with sincerity? As you know, Paul was talking about in the time of unleavened bread, with you know, sincerity, transparency, and truth, genuineness. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at halel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Halel.info. <laughs>